I have this recurring thought about how I'm so glad social media didn't exist when I was younger. I just can't imagine people having phones and cameras with them 24-7 when I was in high school. I mean, we did some stupid shit when I was a kid, and I'm ecstatic that it wasn't captured on film. There's no record of any of these things. There's that time my friends and I drove around collecting those big orange construction barrels so we can play a prank on a friend. Oh, and that time we went to the local Burger King and filled our jackets up with balls from the ball pit so we can play a prank on a friend at school. Uh, apparently, I'm realizing now my friends and I were into pranks, which is probably why I hate them now. I think I burnt myself out in my teenage years. At the same time, I do wish that I had a camera the size of a cell phone to capture memories. I think back to all the moments of my youth that I've forgotten. My wife will ask me what I was like as a kid, and the only thing that I can suggest to her is to look at some of the still photos on the walls of my parents' home. We just didn't capture life the way that we do now. And even though sometimes I think we spend too much time behind the cameras, I'm so thankful that we get to capture moments. Like, for example, I have a two-and-a-half-year-old, and I was just watching some videos from a year ago, comparing them to now. Watching her growth in that way is just so wild. Our parents didn't have that. I mean, yeah, there were camcorders, there were video recording things, but people didn't carry them everywhere they went. We're not talking about pocket-sized cameras here, folks. We also didn't have cameras that we could easily bring into special events like concerts. And I so, so wish that I had a camera that I could have fit right there in my pocket when I was going to concerts and shows. I think about all the shows that I went to that I have absolutely no recollection of now. There are some special moments at some of these events, and there's no record of it besides people discussing some memories occasionally. I wish I had photos or a video from my first ever concert that was piebald and Frotus at, I believe the name of the space was Cafe Savoy in Manchester, New Hampshire. I have such a hazy memory of it now. I mean, it's been like 25 or 26 years since that night. I remember being in a space that clearly felt like a cafe, but the chairs and tables were all pushed against a wall, leaving another wall space open for the bands to play. I mean, there couldn't have been more than 50 people there. Some 50 people all experiencing something special that night as the singer of Frodo's tried to tell us we were standing on molten hot magma as a way to get people moving around. There was the Beastie Boys concert I went to in Worcester, Massachusetts. This was during the Hello Nasty and Intergalactic era. My friends and I were sitting way up top in the arena, but we decided to try and climb over the barriers and rush the pit. My friends at the time were much more nimble than I was, but we did all make it over and luckily evaded the security guards. Uh, unfortunately for me, on that night, I was wearing one of those Adidas soccer jerseys that were super popular in the late 90s. It was neon yellow, like highlighter yellow. I stood out. I actually had to take it off so the security guards couldn't find me as they were trying to kick us out. I've never been very comfortable with my body ever, even in high school, so I have a memory of how uncomfortable I was being shirtless, but not many memories of the concert itself. For a long time now, I've tried to save a ticket stub from the concerts or sporting events that I've gone to. I've been lucky that my day job has provided me a lot of incredible opportunities. Even still, there are just so many shows that I've caught where you just paid at the door or they gave you one of those like raffle type admit one tickets instead of a real stub. So there's no record of many shows that I was witness to. And when I think back, I've been to some pretty legendary shows. There's the final show for the band Kid Dynamite or what was supposed to be their final show. They've since reunited a few times over the years. I was also at the final show for Piebald, who also has reunited since. Come to think of it, I think we just need a new rule where no band is allowed to do a farewell concert or tour unless they are legitimately dying. Like, I can't tell you how much money I've spent on farewell concert tickets and merch over the years, only to find out that the show wasn't all that special after all. 
There was another show I was at in Philadelphia. It was either late 99 or early 2000 at the TLA on South Street. The lineup was Goldfinger, Dynamite Hack, and Mest. When Goldfinger was performing, the drummer for Mest came out on stage and literally took a dump in front of the audience. Yes, someone else came out with him with this sort of serving tray type thing, put it under his ass, and he took a shit right there on the stage. Very strange moment. I understand that. (laughs) Telling this story now makes me a little bit uncomfortable that I witnessed that, but it was something that people talked about. Fast forward a couple years, and I was hanging backstage at a good Charlotte Mest and something corporate concert at Penn State University. I uh, said something about that night. Someone heard me, went and found the drummer of Mest who came out looking for me. He was like, you were there? I need you to come with me right now. He promptly took me over to see the good Charlotte guys and was like, this guy was there. Tell them I took a shit on stage. Very bizarre moment in my life, but also one that I won't forget. As I was writing this out for this episode of Visor Library and thinking about these special concert moments, I started thinking about what are my top five concert experiences. Now, I'm going to give you these five. These are in no particular order here. And these are just special moments in my history. Okay, so I'm sure there have been some shows that I've been to that are arguably better or objectively better than these. But these are the ones that when I think back to my five favorite experiences at concerts, This has got to be them. So let's start at number five. It's got to be the Taylor Swift Fearless Tour. And I know, Taylor Swift, not really a name you were expecting to hear on this podcast, the Visor Library podcast, but I just have to put her in here because she knows how to put on a concert. My day job, in case you don't know, is as a morning radio host in Baltimore, Maryland for a country music station. I came to that station in 2008, right around the time Taylor Swift was breaking out as the next big star. I mean, little did we know what she would turn into. In June of 2009, she brought her fearless tour to Meriwether Post Pavilion just south of Baltimore. I went with my radio station, and I still get goosebumps thinking about this show. It was unlike anything that I had ever seen before. It was like watching a concert mixed with a Broadway show and somehow watching a live music video all at the same time. Now, I know Taylor has continued to grow over the years, but for me, nothing will top that tour. I can't even imagine what went into planning that whole event out. Also that night, I uh, I met the Bush sisters, Barbara and Jenna. Now, Jenna at the time was a teacher in Baltimore, and we had a mutual friend. So that's kind of how that whole thing set up. Now, look, I, I didn't agree with their father's politics. We're talking about 2009. Uh, he was already out of office, so that wasn't really a big thing. But there was something kind of cool about getting a picture with them. I have no idea where that picture ended up. I'll have to see if I can uh, find it somewhere. All right, on to number four. It was a free radio-sponsored concert with Something Corporate. This was on Valentine's Day of 2004 at the TLA in Philadelphia. The local alternative rock station, Y100, put on the show. I had known the guys in Something Corporate for a few years. My roommate in college went to high school with Josh, the guitarist of the band. So we all got to know each other a little bit. I went down to hang that night. I was kind of going through some girl problems at the time. So I was having a rough night. I figured I'd go drink a few beers with the guys, kind of forget about all the issues. And as we did that, I ended up having a little life-changing meeting while there. As I said, the concert was put on by a local radio station. This station was one that I've been trying to get a job at since graduating college about a year before. I've been in touch with the boss of the station over that year, but nothing had really come together yet. So I run into this guy backstage at the show. I was definitely half drunk at the time, so (laughs) my memory may be a little bit fuzzy here, but we said hi, shook hands, and then he said he had a job opening that he wanted to talk to me about. Talk about a sobering moment right there. I've been fighting, like I said, for about a year to break into the radio world, and here it was finally happening. So definitely a show that I'll never forget because of that moment. 
All right, number three, I think this would have to go to something a little more recent. I went up to Philadelphia last year to see the return of the California Takeover show at Underground Arts. If you're not familiar with the California Takeover, it was a live album that came out in the mid-90s featuring three of the biggest hardcore bands at the time. That's Earth Crisis, Snapcase, and Strife. Now, not only were the bands huge, but the recording was incredible. Honestly, this live recording belongs in the upper echelon of recordings, up there with like Peter Frampton and others. And that sort of live compilation album really was groundbreaking that it helped introduce so many kids to that music. I mean, I was already familiar with Snapcase, but it was my introduction to Earth Crisis and Strife. That concert that I'm talking about was recorded in 1996, I believe. Uh, The three bands had essentially broken up later on, but decided to get back together for the 25th anniversary of the album. They did a few shows for it, and when I saw that one of those was going to be in Philadelphia, I just knew that I had to go. So I drove up from Baltimore, and I'm so glad that I did. It was the first time that I'd ever seen Earth Crisis and Strife live, which was weird to think about given all the concerts that I went to. I just never crossed paths with them, and I never miss a chance to see Snapcase. Even though the guys and the bands... And the crowd, let's be honest, were a lot older than we once were. The energy was just insane. It was one of those moments where I went from being 40 plus years old back to being 16 in the sweaty basement of some church or a local hall. My only regret with this concert is that I wish I had been able to go with some of my friends that I went to concerts with. As I've mentioned in earlier episodes of this podcast, that hardcore music community was just that a community. My old group has all dispersed at this point to different areas of the country, so I end up flying solo these days. I've got no issue catching a concert alone, don't get me wrong, but there is something about enjoying it with friends. Number two on my list is a classic case of my memory maybe not lining up with reality, so I'll tell you the story as I remember it. If you're listening to this right now and you remember it differently, if you happen to be at the same show that I was at, uh, please let me know where I went wrong. But let's go back to the fall of 1999. I had just moved to the Philadelphia area for college. I tried to get into Philly a few times to see what the music scene was all about. Uh, There was a venue there called the First Unitarian Church. I mean, I should say the venue was in the basement of the church. They had this like daycare area that at night turns into a concert hall. It's pretty wild when you think about it, but that's really been a legendary place for concerts in Philadelphia. It still hosts shows today. Uh, Bands honestly like try to make their tour around playing at that venue. I remember seeing a show with Reggie and the Full Effect coming up. I knew I wanted to catch that one. I was a fan of the band. Uh, The line that night was pretty outrageous, but I did finally make it in. I don't remember who else was on the bill, but all of a sudden, the Get Up Kids popped out to open things up. Now, Reggie and the Full Effect was the project of former Get Up Kids keyboardist James Dewey's. So I guess it's not shocking that they were there, but they were definitely on a bigger level at the time. I remember thinking, thank goodness I got here early tonight or I would have missed this really incredible moment of the Get Up Kids opening the show. Just, I don't know, one of those memorable moments, not only for me, but also for Philadelphia concert lore. I've actually heard the singer of the Get Up Kids, Matt Pryor, reference this show a few times over the years. So something that obviously meant a lot to them as well. Then we have come to number one on this list, and that honor belongs to a concert that has always been very special to me. I left Philadelphia in May of 2007 to start a new job with the radio station in Washington, D.C. I moved down to the district. I knew absolutely nobody, but I started investigating the local music venues and found some incredible options with the 930 Club, the Black Cat, and others. I spent many of my nights at the 930 Club, just a legendary venue in D.C., And I can say probably the best sounding venue that I've ever been to in my life. I happen to notice a specific band coming to town and thought, now this is a show that I just cannot miss. And it was the Deftones. 
They were playing at June 3rd at the 930 Club. The Deftones had no business performing there. They were one of the biggest bands in rock music, should have been at a larger venue. I mean, I'd seen them at larger venues, but here they were. They were playing the 930 Club, and I was not going to miss the show. I scored some tickets through work, and I went, and I, I think my ears may still be ringing to this day. To say that the band blew the roof off the venue would be a massive understatement. As I said, the Deftones had no business playing there. The band was about six months out of the release of their fifth album, Saturday Night Wrist, so they were touring in support of that. I don't think that album performed as well for them as they had hoped, so maybe that's why they were doing some smaller venues. I do wish that I had a camera at this concert. I mean, cameras on phones were around in 2007, but they weren't quite ready yet for something like this at that time. I'd love to go back and relive some of the moments from this show. My memory, honestly, is starting to fade on it. But thank goodness for the internet because I looked up the set list, and it's a pretty perfect medley of their biggest songs to this date. Uh, There were songs from their latest album, as I mentioned, Saturday Night Wrist, as well as tracks from their self-titled album, White Pony, their debut, and the album that we're here to talk about today, the 1997 release, Around the Fur. Yes, this is Visor Library, an adult education podcast. Today, we're on letter D, and we're talking about the Deftones, Around the Fur. If you're not familiar with the Deftones, I'll give you a little background here. The band formed in Sacramento, California in 1988. A few of the guys went to the same high school and found they had interest in similar bands, thus starting their interest in starting a band together. Some of those interests were from Anthrax to Bad Brains and Depeche Mode, so the Deftones had a pretty wide range of influences. Their debut album, Adrenaline, came out in 1995. The lead single off that was Bored. I do remember seeing the video on MTV, and that was my introduction to the band. The video shows the guys performing together, but also giving a look into their lives. And I remember thinking that the Deftones looked and acted a lot like the hardcore and punk bands that I was into. It was kind of cool to see guys that were like my peers getting this national exposure. For some reason, they kind of got lumped in with the rap rock movement that started around that time. They were breaking out, I guess, at the same time as Limp Bizkit, Korn, and Incubus. And even though the Deftones blazed their own trail, they'll always kind of be associated as one of the bands that helped to create what would later be known as new metal. Now, Adrenaline would open the door for them, but it was their sophomore album, Around the Fur, that would really break it down. It's funny, I think a lot of people forget about this album. The band's third record, White Pony, is very highly regarded by critics, and most would say it is their best effort, and it is incredible. There's no argument for me on that, but Around the Fur always stood out as my favorite. I mean, I still break it out to jam out to in my car now. The drums and the bass on this album are killer. The producer really nailed it. For anyone who thought the Deftones were going to be a flash in the pan or just another new rap rock band, Around the Fur immediately silenced those critics. It's arguably heavier and more brutal than Adrenaline, but also more beautiful. It's the album that helped Chino find his very recognizable voice and helped the band start to master their fuzzy rock sound. The whole album kicks off with what I would consider to be one of the most recognizable intros. That's the intro to My Own Summer, Shove It, the lead track and lead single from the album. That was another wild music video. It shows the guys performing on what looks to be little platforms in the water as we're supposed to believe that great white sharks are swimming underneath. 
The song is just insane. It's got that quiet, loud vibe to it. You also get to hear Chino stretch his vocals and it's very signature sound, but then he lets out this blood curdling scream as well. Oh my gosh, I get goosebumps for this one. I've been re-listening to this album and I think it might be their heaviest as a whole here. I mean, there's some quieter songs for sure, but I think comparatively with the rest of the Deftones catalog, Around the Fur just might be the heaviest one. Track two on the album is Labia. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right because it's spelled differently, but anyway, it's the guitar on this one for me. Then Chino has this sort of distorted singing that leads into the chorus. I have absolutely no idea what he's singing, but it just, it works, right? It works in this setting. Mascara is next up. This is the first time we get to hear the Deftones slow it down a little bit on this album. I've read that the song is about domestic abuse and Chino's struggles in his relationship at the time. Mascara is a great song, but for me, it was always a transitional song that gives the listener a little break before crushing them with the next track, and that's the title track, Around the Fur. Again, the very opening seconds of this song, you just know right from the bat that it's going to be insane. I would listen to this song over and over and over again in my car. Hell, one of the biggest reasons I wanted to get an amp from my car stereo was so I could listen to this song louder. Oh, my God. And the chorus, the chorus is unreal. I don't know how the Deftones knew that I needed this song in my life, but I did, and they gave it to me. If I ever start a band, for whatever reason, I'm 100% covering this song in the set list every single night. Ricketts is up next. It's a very fitting follow-up to Around the Fur. It still had that intensity, but it does change things up a little bit. Ricketts goes back to the Chino whispering at times, and the chorus just blows up and rips through your eardrums. Arguably the most popular song off the album comes in at track six. That's Be Quiet and Drive Far Away. If I had to pick a song on the album that would be the best representation of what the future would sound like for the Deftones, it would be this one. It shows the beginnings, really, of their shoegaze sound that would become much more present in future works, and it shows a lot of the vulnerability and emotion in their music. I don't know exactly what this song is about, but I feel like I can really just feel the emotion in Chino's lyrics, as well as the music. I mean, the band almost plays the music like they're mad at their instruments. Be Quiet and Drive could just as easily fit on White Pony as it does here on Around the Fur. Now, for me... This is where I usually stop listening to the album, not because I don't like the remaining songs. I just I like these opening songs so much better that I had to dive back into the second half of the record to refresh my memory. Uh, Lotion is next up, and it's clear that the band isn't wasting any time getting back into the heavier side. Lotion sounds to me almost like it should have been on Adrenaline. It reminds me a lot of their debut album, and that's not a bad thing. It's a really great song. There's a lot going on in this track. It's essentially chaos in song form, yet somehow it all works together perfectly. 
Die the Flu is track eight. I do like this song, but it's probably my least favorite on the album. So I guess I'm just going to kind of brush over that one. Track nine and kind of the last track on the record is Head Up. The Deftones bring back the brutality for this one. I don't think I've ever heard this one live, but I do feel like I need that to happen at some point in my life. I would love to see them rock through this one on the stage. I didn't know this until today, actually, but Max Cavalera from Sepultura and Soulfly provides some guest vocals on this song. I guess I always noticed there was another voice in the track, but I never looked into who it was. Max and Chino, I mean, gosh, they just sound great together. Now, Head Up isn't technically the final song on the album. The last track is called MX, and then there's a couple of hidden tracks as well. Do you remember hidden tracks? This trend kind of took off in the 90s. Bands would leave time at the end of the album and then add some songs in after sometimes 20 or 30 minutes of just blank time. It is the 90s music equivalent of the scenes that Marvel puts at the end of its movies. These hidden tracks were specifically frustrating on cassette tapes because you'd fast forward and sometimes you'd miss the song. I'll be honest, I don't miss that the hidden track trend has died out at all. The Deftones have gone on to release nine full-length albums. Their latest, titled Ohms, came out in 2020. It would seem that they're just about due for a new one. Uh, guys, let's uh, let's make this happen. Their sound has definitely changed a bit with each album. Some people even call them the Radiohead of metal. White Pony still stands out as the band's most popular and best review, but I don't think any of the albums disappoint. They all bring a little something different to the table. The last record, Ohms, felt like a bit of a return to the Around the Fur era at times, and for me personally, it was great to hear that. Overall, I mean, it's not easy to be a band for more than 30 years, and on top of that, to still be releasing compelling music three decades later. The Deftones have consistently reinvented themselves in such a way the fans have stuck around, and one could argue the fan base is even bigger now than it was decades ago. And let me tell you, that fan base is rabid. They've got intense fans, and I love that for them. I always look forward to see and hear what the Deftones have in store for us. I hope they keep writing, recording, and performing for years to come. I also hope that one day I get to see them perform songs from around the fur again. I'll tell you, if I'm at a show, I will lose my mind when I hear this.